Good morning. My name is Scott Gilliland, and I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. It is my joy to welcome you this morning to Thrive Worship. We're glad that you're here uh, during our summer months as we continue in our sermon series called In Between, Learning to Live in the Desert, uh, where we've been studying the story of the Israelite people as they wandered uh, through the Red Sea and entered into this desert season of discovering who they were and who God was and how that all came together for them uh, in a season of difficulty for 40 years before they were able to enter into the Promised Land. And so uh, the first week of the series, we talked about how we find ourselves into the desert. That may be a question you've had on your heart in the past. How did I end up here? Uh, Why is God doing this to me? Is God doing this to me? Is this what God wants for my life? If you ever had those kind of questions about seasons of difficulty, I encourage you to go back and listen to the first sermon in the series. Last week, uh, we talked about um, the chapter 16 of Exodus, which is where the Israelites really begin to complain, and the way that God meets them in that complaining, in that survival mode mindset, and attempts to lift them out of that. So if you've ever been in a survival mode mindset, I encourage you to listen to that message as well. Today, we're going to continue with our study uh, and staying in the book of Exodus, uh, this time turning to chapters 20 and 32, but we're actually going to read them in reverse order because uh, I just felt like having fun today, reading the Bible backwards, whoa, you know. Um, and to get us into this story, uh, just so you know where my head's been this past week, Reagan and I have been traveling. We've been in Seattle, Washington uh, this past week. We've been going uh, to a group called the Gottman Institute, which some of you may or may not be aware of. It's a, uh, it's a research group headed by a couple who are a couple of very educated PhD types who um, have been studying relationships and families for decades and have all of this information based on their research about what makes um, strong relationships, strong marriages, strong families. Reagan and I went there for some training. You'll be learning more about workshops and different things that we're hoping to roll out this next year in the coming weeks and months. But that's why we were in Seattle. Uh, And while I was in Seattle, it got me thinking about heading west. It was the second time I'd ever been on the west coast. Uh, which is cool, uh, first time being on our honeymoon in San Francisco, made me think about traveling west in, in a book that I read recently that a lot of our clergy in the area were asked to read by our bishop and our leadership, uh, and it was called Canoeing the Mountains, which is an interesting, that, that title hooked my interest. I'm, I definitely judge books by their cover, do you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Canoeing the Mountains is a book by Todd Bolsinger. It's designed for Christian leaders, but it, I think it could be applied to a lot of different circumstances. And the, the point of the book, he uses the allegory of the story of Lewis and Clark. Remember them? They're the ones, the explorers who traveled west to try to find the west coast. And they set off from kind of the Midwest, the Plains region, where there's lots of rivers and prairies and everything's relatively flat. And so they took a canoe because they're thinking, well, if we just ride in this canoe down this river long enough, we'll find the coast, Right? And that worked for them until, what did they hit? The Rocky Mountains. And it's hard to canoe up the Rocky Mountains. Can you imagine trying to do that? Very quickly, they realized that this object they had brought, this plan that they had was not going to work. They were going to need to adapt and to change at the foot of these mountains, that these mountains were in the way, and they were going to have to radically change if they wanted to keep going on their journey. And the, story, and the book is really about how we as leaders have to adapt and change uh, in those seasons when we hit mountains in our lives. Today, we're going to talk about when the Israelites hit a mountain, the mountain of Sinai, Uh, when they are met with this reality that they're going to have to change. Uh, And we're going to read these stories in reverse. The stories we're going to read today, uh, Exodus 32 is the story of the golden calf. Many of us may be familiar with that one. 
We're going to read that one first to better understand the second story, which is the story of the Ten Commandments. And I'll, hopefully that will make clear by the end of today. So um, before we read uh, our scripture this morning, let's stop and pause and take a moment to pray and invite the Spirit into this moment together. Gracious God, we, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your word this day, um, the words of your people's journey through uh, the desert uh, that we've been wandering in these last few weeks. God, we ask that you would meet us here in these pages and in these words, that you would make them come alive for us and take them off of the pages of our Bibles and off of the screens in our room and put them into our hearts so that we might take them out and live them out this week. In your sons, let me pray. Amen. So, uh, Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. So, uh, just so you're aware, Moses is up talking with God. He's in this shroud. There's this sort of cloudy shroud that he and God are in, so they can't see Moses. God is this very ethereal, you know, indefinable kind of presence, and they don't know what's happening. He's been up there for quite a while. And so the Israelites begin to get sort of... Uh, annoyed, nervous, freaked out, frustrated, you name it. And this is sort of where they are in chapter 32, verse 1. You'll see these words on your screens. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron, who was Moses' brother and kind of the second in command, and said to him, come, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, No, I am a great leader, and I will protect my God, and you will be faithful. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, take off your gold rings that are on your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So he really needed to be convinced, right? So all the people took off their gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he said, this is terrible. We should put a stop to this. No, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. So today, these two stories are massive stories. We could do a whole sermon on just the story that we just read. I could do a whole sermon on that. We could do a whole sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We're not going to do that. You know, we're going to take the bird's eye view of both of these stories. Uh, and the bird's eye view for the Golden Calf story, as far as, as I have seen this past week, it is, it is in essence Israel's uh, fundamental refusal to change. You know, when they build this golden calf, it's not just because they like the taste of beef, right? Like, I would build a golden calf because I love hamburgers and steak. That's not why they build a golden calf. They build a golden calf because the golden calf was an image of one of the many gods that Egypt had. So there would have been golden calves all around them when they were in captivity in Egypt. It was one of the many different gods that Egypt represented through animal form. And so this golden calf would have been something that they would have seen all over the place. It would have been familiar, this, this presence that they, were, that they were reminded of when they thought back to their time in Egypt. And maybe even some of them had worshipped this golden calf at times when they were in captivity. And so their decision to melt down their gold and to build a golden calf again is in essence them saying, um, we're not so sure about this cloudy, mysterious, mystery, you know, mysterious God, this, this, this misty God that's up in the mountain with Moses. We're not sure about any of that. But remember that golden calf? 
Remember how things used to be. Remember, remember when we had the golden calf and, and things were better than they were today when we at least had, we had food and we had water and we had a bed and, and now we're just wandering and wandering and wandering. And so what if we worshiped that golden calf again? And the best thing about a golden calf is you can see it and you can touch it and you can move it wherever you want to be and it can tell you whatever you want to hear, right? It's the most ta- tactile, tangible kind of object, totally different than a God shrouded in mystery whose name you can't even say. When Moses is asked, who is this God? He says, God, I am who I say I am. That's what God says. I am who I am. Well, what kind of name is that? The golden calf. Now, that's something we can wrap our minds around. That sounds better to me. I think so many times we are resistant to change because it's mysterious. It's murky. It's cloudy. There's something about it that that I'm not in control anymore, and I've got to follow this thing that I'm not even that sure about So maybe I'll just go back to what I'm comfortable with. Maybe I'll go back to what I know. Maybe I'll go back to what makes me feel good. And this decision to to not change, to not fully embrace and follow this new, mysterious, wild, mystical God, uh, it it costs them greatly. They don't know this yet, but it's going to cost them greatly. Um, They're going to experience uh, wandering much longer than they might otherwise would have. Have you ever wandered more in life than you probably should have because you refused to make a change that you knew was necessary. They're going to fight battles that probably were not necessary either. Uh, Have you ever fought battles in life because you refused to make a change that you knew was necessary? In in essence, it's going to make their, their time in the desert much, much more difficult because they are so Uh, stuck in this position of refusal to change, have you ever experienced more difficulty in life than you probably should have because you refused to make a change that you knew was necessary? Why do the Israelites resist this change so much? Why don't they embrace this new God who's wild and mysterious and who parts the Red Seas and who they know brings them out of captivity? Why are they so resistant? Why do they turn their attention back to this little golden calf. Well, I I hear three things in the text this morning um, that we just read. I hear three things coming out of their own words, these sort of uh, emotions that I hear in my own voice when I'm resistant to change. And maybe you hear them too in your voice. The first one is this. I, I hear pride in their voice. And pride sounds like this. I know what's best for me. Is anybody here who struggles with pride? I do. I always know what's best. Don't tell me how to live my life. I know what's best for me. Thank you very much. I mean, this is the root sin. This is what we encounter in the Garden of Eden when we bite of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of knowing what's best for me. It's this pride that says, I don't need anyone else to tell me how to live. I hear that in the Israelites. Just let me live my own life. I hear fear. You know, I can't see what's going on up there. I don't know what's being said. And in fact, I don't even know where we're heading. I know we keep hearing about this land of milk and honey, but what is that? Where are we going? What is all of this leading to? I don't know that I trust this anymore. Fear says, I don't trust where this is going. Have you ever struggled with trusting where things are heading? I do. The last thing I hear in their voice is stubbornness. I've always been this way. Now I know there are folks in the room who can recognize this one, right? 
I've always been this way. Old dogs don't learn new tricks. Tigers don't change their stripes. This is me. This is who I am. Don't try to change me. I don't feel like changing. That sounds very exhausting. I'm just going to keep doing things the way I've been doing them. I'm a pastor. Church, let me be honest with you. I know this is how we feel, right? In, in church world, how many times have I heard, well, we've always done it this way. Oh, well, that's a great reason to keep on doing it, right? You know, well, we've already, we've already gotten this far, so we'll just keep doing things the way we've always been doing them. Pride, fear, and stubbornness. These are emotions and, and these are thoughts that I have every single day when I know God is asking me to change something. I know God is calling me into something new and something different. And I say, I know what's best for me, God. Or I say, I don't trust where this is heading, God. Or I say, you know what? I, why change, God? I've always been this way. Eh. It's just going to be this way forever. What's the point? So now that we understand where the Israelites are, where their headspace is kind of at, and they've, while Moses is up in the mountain having this conference with God that they can't even see, and they, they're so resistant to this change, what is it that God is actually calling them into? And now we're going to turn back to Exodus 20. This is um, earlier, about 12 chapters earlier uh, in, in Exodus, and, and it begins in verse 1. We're going to read the whole text uh, of the Ten Commandments. Like I said, you're going to hear things in this. You're like, whoa, I wish he'd say something about that. I'm not going to because uh, it takes too much time to work through all this, but just so you're aware, this is what the Ten Commandments text says. Then God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of their parents. So, yeah, talk to me after church. I'm not going to talk about this today, but just, you know, bear with me. To the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will acquit anyone who misuses his name. Now we're on number four. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, the resident alien in your towns. For in the six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but the rest of the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and mother so that, the day, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come only to test you and to put uh, the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What I notice when I read the Ten Commandments, especially in light of this sermon series, again, bird's eye view today, we could do a, si a week on every one of those commandments. Um, when I read those commandments, when I think about this scene in the context of, of our sermon series this month, um, 
what I notice is that, that what God is doing is God is inviting the Israelites to make a change in the way that they live. This isn't just a new code of conduct that God feels like is necessary because murder and all these things were running rampant. God understands that you know, there's sort of a struggle going on in the book of Exodus. A common theme is sort of the struggle of two kings. One is a little K king, and that's Pharaoh. And, and one is a capital K king, and that's God. And, and God always conquers Pharaoh. And here, God continues to use this sort of theme of you're now living under my kingdom, my rule. And when you're the king, you set the laws, you set the government, you set the authority in the land. And so God is saying, now that you're under my rule and I am your king, capital K, these are my laws that I'm giving to you. And then God goes on and on. There's actually a lot more than just 10 commandments, but these are the, the big 10, as we say. Um, I see what God is doing is essentially inviting the Israelites into this substantial change in their lives. Because do you think they took a Sabbath when they were living as slaves in Egypt? Do you think that Pharaoh honored the Sabbath code? I don't think so. Do you think that Pharaoh honored the idea of no idols? Clearly not. They build the golden calf because that's what they were familiar with. This is a radical shift. God is inviting them to make the substantial change at this Mount Sinai moment. Because God knows that in order for them to move forward, if they're going to have this new life that God has prepared for them, the changes are going to be necessary. They're not going to be able to live as well as they could in the promised land if they're not living under the law of God. And so I know for my own life and for all of our lives, when we are in difficult situations or seasons, God will frequently invite us to change. Isn't that good news? Not only are you going through extreme difficulty, not only are you, are you sometimes in survival mode, at the same time God's going to say, hey, here's some changes, maybe some radical changes I'd like for you to adopt in your life. Who's excited about that? Right? Not really. A lot of us push those off, similar to the way that the Israelites do. We have pride and fear and stubbornness get in the way. So how do we keep that from happening? What needs to be our mindset to embrace these changes? So um, when we were in Seattle, first of all, the sun is up a like stupid amount of time. Are you familiar with this? I did not know this. Like evidently there are places in the world north of Dallas. I, I had no idea. Um, and, and during the summer, because the earth is round, uh, the, then the sun is up more because of the way the earth tilts. So in Seattle, the sun is up from like, I'm not joking, 5 a.m. Like the first morning I wake up, I'm like, oh, the sun's nice and bright. It must be, I slept in today. How fantastic is that? It's 5.15. What is happening? You know? Um, so it's up from about 5 a.m. until about almost 9.30 at night. That's how long the sun is up. So needless to say, when Reagan and I were done with our workshop training every day, we had still had like, there's a whole day left. This is so cool, you know. A second day, awesome. Uh, and so we took a boat tour. It's just a little harbor tour kind of a thing where they gave us the little facts. Hey, that's where Frasier was, you know, the Frasier home. And I'm like, I never saw that TV show. Cool. Um, and here's the shipping yard. Well, there was one, there was one story that I found really interesting um, that I was sort of thinking about as I was putting this sermon together this week. It was about the, the first settlers in um, Seattle, the first American settlers. Native Americans have been there for like thousands of years, but they're not real settlers, right? Anyways, another sermon, another day. So, um, <laughs> 
The first American settlers uh, came, there was a group called the Denny Party uh, that came from sort of the Midwest. They, they, came, up to Port, they came out to Portland, uh, decided to head north, and landed at a spot called Alki Point, uh, which is where West Seattle is today, if you know the city of Seattle. There's sort of Seattle, and then it comes around, there's sort of a peninsula sort of across the bay from Seattle, and that's West Seattle, and at the end of that, that point is a point called Alki Point. That's where the first group came. It was just three of them, the Denny Party. Um, and they came, and, and the winter hit, and it was one of the worst winters ever on record, even to this day. Um, it, it was brutal. By the time the next party came, I'm, you know, he didn't say, but I'm assuming you know, late winter, early spring, um, they found the Denny Party. Uh, two of them were extremely sick. One of them was missing. A wild animal, like a skunk or a raccoon or something, had eaten all of their food, and their shelter didn't have a roof. So they, they had a rough time, right? They, they, were in, they were in pure survival mode, and, and they were lucky that someone showed up or else they weren't going to make it. And so they're trying to decide what to do. I mean, this place is really harsh, right? And that's when the local uh, Native American tribe came, and the chief, who was uh, Chief Sealsh, who they later translated to Seattle, huh? um, Chief Sealsh said, well, you guys really picked a pretty terrible spot to settle. This is a really harsh place because the way the peninsula sits, you're not protected from anything thing from the wind to the rain. He's probably thinking, who are these crazy, stupid white people that are out here trying to live on the world's worst real estate? He says, what, why don't y'all go over to that side of the bay? That's going to give you a lot more protection. It's going to be a safer place. You're, you're going you're gonna to have a much better time. They said, great, we're happy to go because they were on the verge of death. And they go and they settle what is now the south tip of downtown Seattle. And that's how Seattle, the rest is history, as they say. Um, but they were in this position where they were so close to death that it was a life or death scenario. And it made it very easy for them to say yes to this change, right? They didn't have a whole lot of pride. Their house didn't have a roof, right? They didn't have any food. Pride's out the window. The only thing they were afraid of was of dying, yeah? And, and, and in terms of stubbornness, at that point, they were willing to listen to anybody. So if Seal should have said, why don't you, you know, head back to Portland, they'd go, great, awesome, that sounds good to us. They were in a position to receive this change because for them it was a life or death situation. It makes me think for my own life, these changes that I'm resistant to, what if I treated them like life or death situations? Because if I'm in a life or death situation, I mean, I am quick to listen to God. You know, God, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I've been in those positions in life before where I was, I was literally saying, I was saying prayers, you know, God, literally tell me to do anything, I will do it. That's not how most of our time is spent, right? Most of our time, we're not in a position where we feel like it's life or death, so we say, nah, I'm good. Because we're too proud, or we're too stubborn, or we're too fearful. What if we truly... Uh, thought like our life depended on the change that God was offering us? Would that change our mind? Would that change your mind? I, I think it might change my mind. If I imagine myself like the Denny party hearing from Chief Seals. And you might say, Scott, not every decision, not every change is a life or death change. There are times when God asked me to change something and like my life's not going to end if I don't go through with it. No, you're right. You're right. And I believe in a good and gracious and merciful God who just because you say no today doesn't mean you can't say yes tomorrow. And, and just because you run from God today doesn't mean that God can't find you tomorrow. But I do believe this. I think there are plenty of times when God is extending a change to us that it, maybe it's not life or death in the traditional sense, but it could be the death of a better life if we reject it. Does that make sense? What if we adopted that mindset? 
saying this change that God is offering me, not, God doesn't ask me to do this just because he, it's fun for him to see me you know, run in circles. God, God sees something in front of me that if I would just make this change, there's a better life on the other side of this mountain. You know, talking about changes, talking about um, adapting, it did make me think about that, that book on Christian leadership, Canoeing the Mountains. And it does make me think about the church, too, because I think that the church is in sort of this moment where we've reached a mountain, so to speak. And there's a lot of changes that we've got to talk about, especially in American Christianity, because there's a lot of conversation these days about how the church is declining. You've probably heard some of this. You know, the church is dying. What are we going to do? What's going to happen? You know, it's a really fun time to be a young clergy person when, like, all your more experienced brethren are like, ah, the ship is sinking. You're like, sign me up. Um, it's important for us to talk about how we can change as a church, though, because I do think that we're at a Mount Sinai kind of moment where we're going to have to adapt to what is a quickly changing culture around us. And one way that I think we need to meet um, our new world with the same gospel that we've always known and loved, that doesn't change, but the way we meet this world in a new way is through the way that we talk about really difficult stuff. And, and, and not, even, you know, not, not even necessarily difficult, like, societal stuff. You know, we do talk about that. I, I'm talking about, talking about, you know, difficult personal stuff. The, the, the darker parts of life that people don't talk about. When you go to church and someone says, hey, how you doing? You don't say, I'm actually really depressed. Right? Or you say, actually, I've never really started grieving my mother's death. Or, you know, I, I carry a lot of shame. You don't say this stuff when people ask you how you're doing over coffee, Right? I think the church needs to be a place where we're comfortable having those conversations, and because of that, we're going to be doing a sermon series in the months of July and August in an effort to kind of uh, start talking about some of these topics uh, to try to meet a world that is, that is in a lot of pain and suffering that doesn't get said. And I'm going to put the topics in the weeks on the, on the screens for you to see. Uh, July 8th is when this starts. That's two weeks from this Sunday. Yes, it is already July. Can you believe it? Um, July 8th, we're going to start this series, and, and it'll be a six-week series. And here's the topics we're going to address. Regret, guilt, Grief, doubt, shame, and fear. Six topics. I'll say it again. Regret, guilt, doubt, shame, fear, grief. Thank you. Reading's hard. Um, I know that every one of us could say right now, oh my gosh, one of those words is living inside my heart every single day, and I need to hear that message. I also know that you know somebody, one, two, three, 14, 15, I don't know. You know somebody who you know is struggling with one of these topics, who maybe has been to church before, maybe not this church, but has just been to church before and has been frustrated that they didn't hear anything about this said who has sort of given up on the church as this place where we all come and we hear a feel-good message that's just sort of surfaced thin and tells a story about a dog and then sends us on our way, right? Um, what if we actually took on the stuff that we know our friends and family and our neighbors and our community is struggling with? And so uh, your church has, has put together this sermon series. Uh, Reagan has been the leader in, in crafting this sermon series. We're calling it Unmentionables. Isn't that fun? We're calling it unmentionables because these are the things that we don't talk about in church, but we should. But we should. And so a, a challenge that we're issuing is for you to think about. That's why we're telling you about it now. It doesn't start for, until two weeks from now. Think about someone you know that might benefit from hearing a healing, hope-filled message on one of those topics or one or more of those topics. And then do the, do the bold thing and invite them 
to church. Now, why are we asking you to invite your friends to church? Is it so that we can have more people in the room? No. Is it so we can make the offering basket fuller? No. Those are marks of fruitfulness. Those are products of a church doing things well. The reason we are asking you to do this is because the mission of this church is loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's what I know about Jesus. Is that when Jesus meets people at Mount Sinai moments, when Jesus meets people in these moments where where there needs to be a change, it's not always about a change over the way we live, but it's a change over the way we understand God and faith and ourselves. It's it's Jesus meeting people who have regret and guilt and shame and grief and every word that we listed up there and, and, and giving them hope and offering them grace and offering them mercy so that they might be able to change the way they approach their next week. So they don't have to carry that regret, that guilt, that shame in the same way. So invite your friends, invite your family, invite someone that you know. Because we believe this could be a transformative series, uh, not only for those of us in the room, but for people who aren't even here yet. Um, To close the message today, um, I know that all of us in some ways encounter Mount Sinai as even little ones every single week, right? I don't know what's going to happen in your life this week. You don't know what's going to happen in your life this week. What I do know is this, is that there are times when we encounter something. Um, We encounter something in these difficult seasons, in these deserts in which we live. And and God is going to ask us to make a choice between what we have known and, and what God is offering us. There is this quote from Walter Brueggemann, who's a big theologian, and he has a commentary on Exodus. And, and rather than sort of pull his stuff into my sermon, I just wanted to quote him directly. Um, he says this about the Ten Commandments. He says, this uncompromising demand of God is properly voiced in a world of unacknowledged polytheism. Did you know we live in a polytheistic world? We've always lived in a world of options, alternative choices, and gods who make powerful, competing appeals. It does us no good to pretend that there are no other offers of well-being, joy, and security. When you're at Mount Sinai, the golden calf sure looks good, doesn't it? In pursuit of joy, we may choose Bacchus. In pursuit of security, we may choose Mars. In pursuit of genuine love, we may choose Eros. It is clear that these choices are not Yahweh, the God of Israel, that these are not gods who have ever wrought an exodus or offered a covenant. In the Christian tradition, he says, baptism is the dramatic form of making a God choice in which receiving a new name and making promises is choosing this liberating covenantal faith against any other shape of life. Thus, in the Christian tradition, appropriating and living out baptism means living by a single loyalty among a mass of options. So this week, I know that we're going to have options. I know I'm going to have options. And there are going to be plenty of days that I melt down my gold and I build myself a calf and I bow at that altar. It's just the truth. But this week, I'm going to try to keep Walter Brueggemann's words and these words of of Exodus in front of my face and be thinking, how am I making a clear and conscious choice for God in the midst of these difficult circumstances? Because usually that requires the conscientiousness. It requires that sort of struggle to say, no, I'm going to be loyal to my baptismal covenant. I'm going to choose this God who does ask me to change substantially, but in the name of a better, healthier, holier life that God is offering me. So go this week into a myriad of choices, into a polytheistic world, and and make those difficult choices for God.
and consider the ways in which God is asking you to change for a better, healthier, holier life on the other side of this mountain. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the story of your people. We give you thanks for the story of their failure. Because God, it's so easy for us to think that faithful people have it all together and always get it right. It's so easy to think that our leaders, especially our pastors and, and, and people that we would hope would never fail us, always get us right. And so God, we thank you for the story of Aaron being too quick to give in. We give you thanks for the story of the Israelites who lose faith in your mystery. God, we give you thanks for the story of your grace. Even in the midst of difficulty, even though the Israelites wandered for 40 years and fought battles they didn't have to fight and experienced difficulties that you didn't necessarily have in mind. But God, we give you thanks that you walked with them that you lived among them, that your presence never left them, that you delivered them on the other side of the mountain into a promised land. God, this week, as we wrestle with the difficult changes that you invite into our lives, as, as you ask for loyalty and as you ask us to make those choices for you on a daily basis, remind us that you are a God of grace and mercy. That yes, you desire more than anything for us to take up your covenant. You desire more than anything for us to abide by your law. And you desire desire more than anything for us to live in righteousness and holiness every day of our lives. But God, you know that we won't. You know who we are. You know that we have pride and fear and stubbornness to boot. And you've still called each and every one of us by name. You've extended your hand and grace and mercy and love. So, God, we give you thanks most of all for that. As we go this week, place a name upon our hearts, the name of someone who we think needs to hear the story of your mercy and your grace and your love in the midst of a difficult season. And give us the courage and the boldness to invite them to this church because we believe it's a message they need to hear. In your son's holy and precious and resurrected name, we pray and we say, Amen.